<laughs> Hi, I'm Roger Clark, uh, at Roger Clark on Twitter. Oh, and I'm Douglas Ketchum, at Hatercles on Twitter. And you're listening to Of Bajor, a podcast about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Douglas and I love Deep Space Nine, and we thought it would be a great idea to just spend some time talking about it and share it with everyone. For those of you who don't know, um, and you're listening to us because you like us or something, well, first of all, thank you. And secondly, Deep Space Nine was the third, fourth, if you count the animated series, entry in the series in the Star Trek franchise. It's probably notable for being the one, the only one that's not on a starship, but a space station. Particularly um, Deep Space Nine uh, in the Bajoran system. Deep Space Nine, I feel, is kind of interesting because I feel like in the night when it was airing, I feel it was kind of like the redhead stepchild in between, you know, with both in between Next Generation and Voyager, with you know, Next Generation getting a lot of attention because obviously it was the the new era and the most popular, and still is like, I think, yeah, the most successful Star Trek TV show. And then Voyager got a lot of attention because it was the flagship show for the new UPN network. And you all saw how well that worked out for them. <laughs> but it's um seemed to be a show that's really in recent years have um really, you know, kind of gotten it's gotten way more attention. I feel gotten the attention it kind of deserved. And I you know, especially at least on our little corner of the internet, we're Twitter, I mean. You know, you see a lot of, you know, it seems like a lot of people really like the show. Yeah. And so we thought, you know, let's talk about it. Let's do a show about it. Yeah, I, I, I really love Deep Space Nine. I, I love Star Trek in general, specifically the TNG era kind yeah, of shows. Um, and Deep Space Nine, I feel like it's just, it's, it's a really unique show because it occupies a space in sci-fi TV that kind of... It was a really unique place because it was the first Star Trek show to have a consistent setting. I mean, the inter- Next Generation yeah. was set on the Enterprise, and the Enterprise was the same setting every every show, but they were always stopping at some planet. They were always off doing something, and it was always about the thing that was changing rather than the things that were staying yeah. the same. And it allowed Deep Space Nine to be a lot more character focused. You got you got to kind of stare at things a lot longer than you did yeah. at on TNG and I really like that. Nowadays of course all TV, you know, pretty much every television show sci-fi or otherwise is serialized. Yeah. And you can kind of see some of that on Next Gen with um the Klingon Civil War and Worf's like, you know, dis- being dishonored, dishonored and rehonored and dishonored and rehonored. Yeah. And obviously with the Dominion War arc, yeah, you very much see kind of like yeah, I feel like it's very much kind of a missing link between kind of a more episode-by-episode episode show, uh, sci-fi shows used to be, towards today's heavily serialized, where you know, you really need to, like, watch a show, every episode, and in order to, you know, get what's going on. Yeah. I wonder, like, one reason the show is, like, more popular is it seems, Evo was done in 90, and ended in 99, it seems very much a post-9-11 show with all of its themes, you know, terrorism. And the paranoia, you know, questioning of, of those in authority, you know, it's very much a show that I think, you know, more than the ever Star Treks, you know, kind of really speaks to our experiences, you know, in the 21st century. I, I can see the argument from a lot of 
Star Trek fans who say that that's one reason why they don't like DS9 is because it got dark and it kind of turned a light on, maybe not turned a light on, but it kind of made up things that the Federation was doing wrong or showed a perspective on their cultural imperialism or their kind of uh, snotty attitudes toward their moral beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, a lot of the Star Trek fans say they don't like Deep Space Nine because it's not what Roddenberry would have written. It's not as utopian. And, I mean, I still think it definitely is utopian. It's dark compared by Star Trek. Like, compared to Next Generation and, you know, the original stories, yes, it's dark. But I feel like, you know, compared to a lot of other, you know, dark media, you know, it's definitely still very positive compared to, like, you know, a lot of the stuff we see now have all gotten much, much darker since this century, you know, properly reflecting our, you know, national mood. Yeah, it's definitely still pretty, pretty utopian. They have replicators that can make whatever they want. They don't have to worry about food or, you know, disease or, or really anything at all, except for their enemies. Real diseases, they have like, but yeah, they only have to worry about sci-fi diseases that they manage to come up with a cure with by the end of the episode. Yeah. It would be nice if we had Dr. Bashir or Dr. Crusher or... The holographic doctor. Any of the doctors, really. Yeah. All, the doctors are really the only thing for all... Yeah, I think, I think that's, like, the one role where, like, all five shows, like, they're all... All the doctors are really good characters. Yeah. There's not really any bad... Yeah, I liked them all. Yeah. Even Pulaski. She was just... Yeah. Girl bones. Yeah. We just talked about how we both discovered DS9 and, you know, Star Trek in general. Uh, would you like to go first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... I watched Star Trek a lot as a kid, and it's it's hard to really say why. I feel like my my uncle watched a lot of Star Trek, and at at the time, it it just seemed like normal TV to me. Like when you're a kid, you don't really you don't really ask like why are you watching this? Why are you not watching something else? You just you just watch what's on, and you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, what else are you gonna do? Go outside? Exactly. Yeah, nerds don't go outside, and I I think. Speaking of being a nerd, I think Star Trek is a huge influence on why I became the kind of person that I am um, today. And Star Trek was really important for me because it, it showed, in contrast to my kind of like rough environment, it, it showed a, a reality in the future where everything turned out okay for humanity and we all solved our problems eventually. And, and now what we're trying to do in the future is explore the galaxy and figure everything out. Like, and I think that seeing that when I was a little kid was really inspirational. Like, all the characters on every Star Trek series, they're, they're superheroes. You know, they, mm-hmm. you know, you take Captain Picard and you, you take Riker, you take Cisco. They're all battle trained. They're all trained scientists. They're all like really into history and they all just, they're, they're really, really impressive people. And seeing that, seeing every character kind of be like that, kind of sets up this set up this expectation in my mind where where like I was like, okay, you know, if I'm really going to be successful, I have to be like the Starfleet officers. I have to be just this well-rounded kind of superhero-like character. And I think that I I hope that a lot of kids around the the country got the same sort of experience from that because it, it really helped me out. 
as opposed to you, I I remember my parents watched Next Generation, but I don't know. I mean, I guess I watched enough of it that I was like, I guess I was familiar. Like I knew, I recognized characters. And I think, well, I, I knew the looks like when I saw Ferengi, I knew, oh, that's that Star Trek race. But I don't, wasn't too into it. Like I was even like, I think I was young. I was even kind of confused about what was Star Trek and Star Wars. I remember we were watching Star Trek once. My dad came home and he said, oh, what you watching? I said, oh, Star Wars. And my mom had to correct me. <laughs> There's only like two really big memories. I remember of Next Generation, the episode with that um, big space creature that thought the Enterprise was his mom. Yeah. I remember that, and specifically, I guess, remember, like, oh, we spoiled the milk. And then I remember a scene from The Descent where talking to the data basically about, like, killing and basically how, like, you know, killing made him feel. He was talking to one of the Borg data was having that conversation with. But yeah, those are maybe the only two things I really, I could really, that really, like, stuck in my mind. I don't know, I guess I found the one concept interesting. I guess I found, like, the talking about, oh, how killing, I guess that was specifically dark to stick in my mind. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah, like, and I um, I was really, like, into The Simpsons, and then they would air, like, reruns. They would also play, they played Next Generation right before, so I would, like, watch it, to, like, to wait for it to end to see The Simpsons. And I also saw, with my dad, I saw Next Generations in theaters, but I was really, really bored. I didn't follow any of it, was able to follow any of it. I, at the time, like, Next Generation was, like, the only Star Trek I knew. I didn't know there was an original series, so all this thing about Kirk, I wouldn't have gotten, like, the significance of, like, you know, Picard and Kirk meeting or anything. So we're yeah. like, just been like, oh, who's this guy? Why should I care? Why are they, why are we watching him ride horses? I remember seeing Generations and I didn't really like the the original series when I was, I was a kid either because it just, it seemed really old to me. Yeah. And I, I remember kind of not really caring about Kirk. Uh, but yeah, let's, yeah. And Deep Space Nine, specific, I knew about, because I think I remember seeing Quark, and I think I was confused, like, whether he's a good guy or was a bad guy, because, like, I knew the Ferengi were, the, were from start, from, you know, Next Gen were bad guys, so I think I was kind of confused. Yeah. Like, he seemed to be a recurring. But, yeah, was, I'm not sure if it was, but the way it looked, maybe because I was, like, familiar with Next Generation, I knew this wasn't Next Generation. Yeah, for some reason, I was not interested. And, so, yeah, I never really watched, so I didn't really get into Star Trek until, um, I, told, I was, um, in high school, and I think I, I read a book because I would hang out in the library instead of, you know, socializing during recess. So yeah, of course. I read a, I, I read this book like about Star Trek and philosophy, you know, was one of the, I guess the first of those like, you know, books and the futile attempt to like say, hey, maybe, you can, hey, well, maybe you can learn about philosophy compared to your favorite shows. And kind of like, I guess reading the book kind of got me a little more interested in it. And I remember that was about a time like they were um, showing like next gen and DS9, they were repeating them on uh, Spike TV, the channel for men. Oh, yeah. Once I read the reason they had that, because when, I guess, they had the, they're setting up a channel, they were just still deciding, like, what it's, you know, like, gimmick or whatever it was going to be. I guess one idea was, like, to make up a Star Trek channel, and so they bought, like, and so that's why they bought the rights. Yeah, I remember that. It was, it was, it was nice, actually. I, yeah. It was just, it was great to have a channel where Star Trek was on all the time. Yeah, so I like I would start by watching like the next gen re repeats, and then like I remember the first DS9 I saw was the two parter by in Purgatory Shadow by Inferno's Light. You know the two parter where the Cardassian destroy Dominion and like Garrick, Worf, Bashir, and Martok are like stuck. You know they have to get off the Dominion prison. Yeah, asteroid, and that was like I thought, and I thought, oh hey, this this is good, and then I started watching more, and I'm like, oh wow, this is really good, and I really got into it in a way that I never really 
have gotten into any of the, and in fact, I would still say now that I'm more of a, I guess I'm more of a Deep Space Nine fan than a Star Trek fan. Next Generation is probably like, is probably my second favorite. And I still really love it. But next, but as a whole, I say like, I'm into Star Trek kind of as like, okay, this is like, it's like, because it's part of the package deal with DS9. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I mean, it, I think that's probably what they intend. They intend people to get hooked on one show and then yeah. kind of be forced to get obsessed with the rest of it too. I when I was in high school, I was doing some programming work and I I basically did contract programming work to get money to buy Star Trek DVDs and oh. other kind of nerd stuff. So like I had all the DVDs for all the Star Trek series and I kind of just watched them over and over and over again because yeah. that's just what you do when you're uh a nerd in high school. Yeah. Um and yeah, I, I, I remember I liked Deep Space Nine eventually. Like I, I liked I liked Deep Space Nine once I started watching it again. And every, every time after every every other time I've watched the Deep Space Nine in, in its entirety, I've just liked it more and more. I, I, I really do think it's probably the best one of the TNG era series. Yeah. And of course that's that's why we're doing a show like yeah. this. Each week we'll be discussing probably multiple episodes. I mean, we'll we'll see how we're new to this, so we'll see if we go along. You know, obviously, again, both of us are new to podcasts, but, you know, if Maddie can figure it out, I'm <laughs> sure we can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for today, yeah, we'll be discussing specifically this, the pilot, Emissary. Yeah. Emissary is a great episode. It's, it is. It really is one of the best. It's really... I think one thing interesting is, is how the way it uses... Um, I guess it kind of shows like apparent like being a spinoff and being like in a known, you know, being like a spinoff as opposed to current completely new. Is that well? I guess one of the advantages of that is that you're able to like, they're able to like use things without having to explain. And you like when you see like that, you know, Bakar, you know, or Cisco's like in the opening scene. Like, I mean, they have a little scroll in case, but I think like yeah, you know, like oh, it's the board. Oh yeah, I remember. You know, obviously, and especially at the time because I think you know, Next Generation, I think was. Yeah, you know, it wasn't just some for my re- yeah, it wasn't just a niche, like you know, nerd. Thing. Yeah, it was, it was incredibly like a, popular. Yeah, it was a popular with like the general audiences. So yeah, I think you know, but I think yeah, most people would have like, you know, known what that what was all that was about. And I think also like you know, when you little things like you see like, I guess like you can see like, you know, you see like Picard, you know, Cisco, Cisco's um, you know, commanding officer, the captain is a, a Vulcan. It's like. You know, you like you and you like you kind of like you know what a Vulcan is. You don't need to, like as opposed to a new show. If you saw him, you like you'd be like, I mean, you know, it's an alien, but you wouldn't have any specific values worth yeah to go with. Whereas a Vulcan, we know okay, we know what Vulcans are like. That, that that's really one of the best parts about Star Trek. I think is that you just have this really rich universe that they've created, and there's so much there's so much detail that gets built up every every few episodes. You know, like every, yeah, they they build up all these characters, all these races, like. Even even kind of like a map of the galaxy. I feel like in my head, I have a map of, you know, at least the Alpha Quadrant, like how far away Vulcan is from Earth and how far away Bajor is from Earth. And like, it's like, oh, yeah, so Vulcan's close to Earth and Bajor's close to Cardassia and Bajor and Cardassia are far away from Earth. And that's why it takes so long for people to get from Earth to Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And you just 
it's just nice to have all of that in there. Yeah. And it just kind of helps contextualize every single thing that happens, and it makes everything seem a whole lot more real. Yeah. I imagine at the time, it must have also been a pretty big thrill for fans to see, because, like, in Best of Both Worlds, we don't ever, we don't actually see the Battle Wolf 359. We just see the aftermath. Yeah. So I imagine at the time, it must be pretty excited to actually, like, see it. And I have to say, I've always thought, like, the the shot of just, like, when we go in the board and just, like, Lacutus, Picard, like, just looking dispassionately outside the screen as, like, the ships are just, at the Federation ships are destroyed. Yeah. Just, like, yo, I always thought that was, like, just a cool, like, creepy shot, like, you know, of just him, like, just looking dispassionate yeah, at it. Yeah, it's chilling. Yeah, and it's also... Yeah, and so... And also, again, yeah, obviously... You know, thinking it also takes, like, the Card- both the Bajorans and the Cardassians were introduced, and the Occupation were introduced on Next Gen. Yeah. But... I feel like, yeah, I have a lot to say about that in, in a moment, but I, I wanted to talk about the, the Battle of Wolf 359. Oh, yeah, we should. And I, I, I think that's one of the coolest parts of the episode. It starts yeah. out, so the episode starts out w- kind of like focused on this historic battle between the Federation and the Borg, and it's called the Battle of Wolf 359. I don't really know what Wolf 359 Which, is. I guess is that that's... that real? Yeah, it's a real... I don't know if it's a star, it's, it's a real astrological thing that's, I guess, close to us. Oh, right? really? I mean, it, well, astronomically speaking, I mean, I'm sure it take, of our current technology, it took like, like 100 years or something to get there, but I mean, like, relatively, like, I guess in spatial terms. So. Oh, I, I, I didn't realize that, but that's, that's yeah. pretty cool. It's, it's, it was nice that it showed kind of like, so the, the next generation always kind of had this sort of like, it presented the story of the Federation in this kind of like really overarching kind of, like abstract way and events like this events like the the battle of wolf 359 especially as it's depicted on deep space 9 it, it kind of like shows a little zoomed in kind of micro view on one of these events and you you see an individual ship like and that gets attacked and what's happening to the people on this individual ship that you know for instance in in TNG, you might have just seen this ship go through and just get shot at by the Borg and it would blow up and you would have never even seen anything about the characters on that. And I think that's one of the great parts about this focus on this battle and Deep Space Nine in general is that it allows you to kind of look at these like really, really small stories. And of course, everyone's lives are are these small stories. Yeah. Battles are going to be like... I think, like, I mean, Deep Space Nine, not that it's, I don't want to say, like, drip, like, that's all there is, but obviously, one thing I think it's known for, it's really impressive. I, I know one person, like, preferred to call it, like, you know, especially, like, the later, the like, especially, like, Starship porn, because, you know, we, we, we see, it's the first time, really, we see, like, I'm sure part of it is just, like, you know, they finally had the technology, like, it became affordable, it became important where it was affordable, they could do this on, like, a TV show, where I'm sure, like, I mean, I'm sure they would have showed the Battle of Free Five, yeah. of the battle on, like, Best of Both Worlds, if they could have afforded it but yeah like obviously ds9 is definitely going to like get some really elaborate really cool like you know battles i was impressed with all the special effects honestly I, I i don't i don't really think they had advanced computer stuff going on at at this point in the in the show but i i remember there was this really cool shot when cisco gets into the escape pod with jake and the escape pod is launched out of the saratoga and it shows the the escape pod launching away from the battle, and it 
it just shows the battle like receding in the background really quickly. And I was like, wow, like that's that's a really badass shot. And I, I'm thinking that now in 2017 and it's 25 years later. That's crazy. You know, like I, I shouldn't be impressed with that, but it's it's good. At least for me, it's like sometimes like I'm more impressed, like to me when I've seen modern shows, like it's like I know we have technology easier. So it's like you have to do more for impress me. So it's like knowing that back then the you know, they were still largely, you know, I guess it was like a transition, you know, it was, I guess that was kind of a transitional era between like, you know, I guess what they call like physical hard effects and like, you know, CG to where we are now where everything's CGI. So I think like knowing back then, like, oh, the budget, like, it makes yeah. more impressive to me. Kind of like how like I watch a lot of old sci-fi movies, like stuff that would obviously not be impressive or even be inimpressive like, to me if I saw the movie today as impressive to me just because I know we had much less to work with than we do, than like we do now. The whole beginning of this episode that focuses on the battle, I feel like the beginning scenes where uh, Jennifer is killed by the Borg and Jake is unconscious, I I, yeah. I felt like it was way sadder than I remembered. When I when I watched it this past time, I was like, wow, like, uh, Avery Brooks does a really great job being sad and just kind of making it really convincing that his wife just got killed by these fake guys yeah. with plastic on their faces. And yeah. I, I was impressed with that. His, his acting, I feel like it's it's interesting because I remember when I was a kid, I, I always thought that he was, he, he always seemed like he was really corny or he was overacting. But, but I don't think so. I think, I think that's just kind of what that guy is like. Yeah. And for the most part, once you once you get used to it, it I, I think you just you you start to realize he's a really good actor. It's kind of like similar, I think, with William Shatner, where it's like both of them, I think, are very. In fact, actually, all the captains, you know, except for uh, TV captains, except for like Scott Bakula, I think they're all they all seem like they're very much in a theatrical style of acting. I think Picard probably goes the best because he's British. And so we associate, oh, yeah, yeah British with like theatrical act, you know, Shakespeare. You know, obviously, like, theatrical acting and, you know, acting on screen are different because, you know, obviously on the stage you have to, like, really overact because you're trying to get all these people who are watching. You know, a lot of people are going to be, like, in the background and can't really see you. And I think, yeah, both Avery Books and, like, and William Shatner, I think, have gotten their kind of knocks about, you know, being overacting. But, yeah, I feel like he is very passionate. You know, I feel it's a passion that I think brings to it, which I think works for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think it works because, first of all, there only a certain kind of person ends up in a position of power, right? And you 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 look at people who are really successful, especially like in the media or in politics and stuff, and they're always they're they're always kind of eccentric. They're they're always kind of exaggerated personalities. And I kind of feel like in order to become a Starfleet captain. You have to be kind of political. You you kind of have to be. I mean, if you look at every presidential election, like at least, I mean, the first one I remember was ninety six, and like every presidential, at least my lifetime, it's like it's always been the winner's always been the more charismatic one, and yeah. the loser has always been kind of like the more stuffy one. Exactly, and I, I it just seems pretty obvious that in order to get to a high rank in Starfleet, you you probably kind of have to be a, a pretty a pretty intense kind of person. So it. It makes a lot of sense. Like if if you're just kind of like a boring milk toast kind of kind of person, you're 
you're just going to end up as like a, a red shirt or, or just some ensign that no one no one cares about. You want to talk about the characters? You know, kind of like, I, I mean, once it's Cisco, I like, I guess it's also, about, it's like, I guess one of the things that really differentiated from all the ever captains is that he has a son. I mean, obviously Kirk had a son, but he only met him, you know, late and then he died, got killed immediately afterwards. So that doesn't really count. And it's also, yeah. you know, one thing I like about it is that Jake and, you know, Cisco, they have like, the relationship is good. They, they don't have, like, I feel like I can see it would have been really easy. Like, I don't think a lot of people would have had, like, you know, Jake, like, you know, he blames, you know, he have, have him, like, be angry at his dad and blame him for his mom dying and for, you know, very safe. But, you know, I like, you no, know, he does. And I like yeah. that they, throughout the series, you know, I think, you know, occasionally they get, like, you know, they have their differences, but, you know, it's always very clear they both very love each other and they're very affectionate and for each other. And yeah, it's heartwarming. Because I think, again, like, I think, like, the obvious thing, and the thing I think they would have done now is, like, have their relation, and a lot, yeah, like, a lot of shows, you know, obviously they have father son's relationships are, you know, very tense. Even when they're ultimately, even though we, even when we know they love each other, it's like, you know, they're obviously, you know, it's very tense. And then the show is usually about, I guess, how they break that tenseness. But with Deep Space Nine, you know, it's from the start. They, we know Jake and, you know, Cisco like, love each other. And they, and they have a good relationship. It, I, th I think it's harder to write that, too. And I think it's, it's probably more satisfying because it's not hard to write two characters that are at each other's throats or... Even just kind of like you, kind of dispassionate toward each other or annoyed with each other or act kind of just standoffish. But it's I think it is harder to write two characters that actually like each other and what they would say, what they would do and have it not be corny. Yeah, I, I do remember when I was a kid, I thought that uh, Cisco's relationship with Jake was a little bit was a little bit cheesy. But I think that was probably just because. When I saw that, I was like, oh, clearly nobody's like this. But, you know, that's that's what that's what parents are supposed to be like. You know, like parents are supposed to like their kids and the kids are supposed to like their parents. And I don't know, I I, I really like Jake and and Benjamin's. I don't know. It's weird calling him Benjamin. Uh, I, I really like Cisco and Jake's relationship. It's 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 just a refreshing thing to be on TV, especially in a, in a context like this. You know, it's interesting that I feel like Cisco obviously is black, and that's not really, as far as I, as I can remember, I think that's only brought, at least, that's only really brought up in two episodes, obviously the Far Beyond the Stars, and then the, um, in season seven, like the Vic Fontaine episode, the hologram, where he says he initially, he says he doesn't like Vic's because, you know, it shows, uh, presents like, you know, 60s or an old Las Vegas as, you know, accepting of all races, and he doesn't like that. But, and I, so it's, but it is like, I think, very, and I think that is kind of interesting that, you know, it's like very, it's matter of factly. I guess part of it is because the idea, it's a Star Trek and it's, um. Yeah. Everything's supposed to be at the point where no one's, where no one's that racist anymore. Yeah. Like we're past racism and everything. Or at least like human racism. I mean, like, you know, obviously O'Brien, you know, was like, we can't trust the Cotties. Yeah. But, you know, it's like space racism. You know, it's like, you know. <laughs> space yeah, racism. Yeah, not like. Human race. Like, we're not racist against each other, racist against our species. Yeah, I mean I, I feel like I feel like space racism is kind of a theme of this show. It's theme of Star Trek in general, really. His role as the emissary, in that he's like the um, I feel like, you know, a lot of ways that could be very like what we would now call be problematic, like, you know, a guy from you know, since obviously the Federation is you know, you I think most people said the Federation is represents America, 
And so obviously he comes out with this foreign cult, this like kind of like, yeah, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, primitive, you know, culture. And he's like, becomes like a godlike figure. I mean, that could be, I figure like a lot, that could be very, would be considered like a lot of people would consider problematic. But I thought it's very interesting that Cisco is black and most of the Bajorans are portrayed by white. So it's like this very interesting thing where it's like a black, the black man is the, like from the, you know, the technological, like, civilization like with the power and it's the whites who are like the downtrodden native super you know superstitious natives who are like you know you know are like you know basically have been like spent their you know whose plans basically whose lands basically been ravaged by colonialism i i wonder how much of the casting of the bajorans they actually thought about i feel like whenever i see all of the bajorans being white i wonder if it was a conscious choice or i wonder if it was just the the I, Maybe it was just what happens in Hollywood where they just, by default, only hire white people. Yeah. I think it do the duet. Last time I saw that, I think, like, one of the, ex there was, like, an extra, one of them was black. And I know, like, in the books, I think they've introduced, like, a, like, there's a, they introduced, like, a character who's, like, a black Bajoran. But, yeah, definitely on the show, like, I think, at least all the speaking and all the major, definitely they're all white or at least white passing. Which I think it's kind of, so I feel, I was thought that was kind of an interesting angle, but it's, and kind of reversal of, like, how, you know, that sad story is usually portrayed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Cisco's good. Um, I mean, we'll have a lot, we have a whole series to talk about, so obviously we'll... One thing I was really impressed with was the portrayal of O'Brien, uh, Chief O'Brien. I, I feel like out of all the characters that get introduced on this episode, I feel like O'Brien is the most consistent between between his portrayal on Next Generation and the rest of Deep Space Nine. I feel like he's like, O'Brien always seems like a very professional guy. He's, he's like, he's not super expressive, but he, you know, he's, he's just like a really solid guy. And, and he feels very much like a, he's like a man of the people. I think like the, the show's writers, like, have called him, like, you know, and there's definitely that, you know, he's very, he like, seems like a working class, you know, kind of Joe as compared to some of the ever, you know, like he's not like listening to, he's not like, he's not like listening to like opera, uh, you know, and, or going to the holodeck, like, you know, as Robin, you know, like as King Arthur or whatever, like, you know, you, it's like, you know, he's a very like working class, you know, he has a wife and kid. He's like, and he kind of like, I guess that the way that like, you know, kind of the way the Starfleet, you know, it, it seems like, start, it's like for him, it's like, it's primarily first and foremost, a job, like not like, I think forever's, you know, like this philosophy or this life thing. It's like for him, it's like, yeah, it's how I, you know, well, I guess, you know, they don't pay the bills, but like, it's how I make a living. It's like what I do with my life. Yeah, I, I really like O'Brien. I mean, as an engineer, I think I relate to him a lot. Um, and it, like I said, I think it was just nice to see him on this episode being yeah. kind of the same as he is for the rest of the series, which I think probably relates to the fact that as a, as an actor, Cole Meany's, he's like yeah. a little bit older than most of the rest of them. And so he's probably more set in his yeah. ways. Plus the character already existed. So he, he had that to work with. Um, and I, I think that it, it was just nice that they did that. It was nice that they had a character over from TNG. I really liked the scene with Picard and O'Brien. Yeah, that's a nice uh, scene. Where he, when O'Brien's leaving the Enterprise, he... Picard comes in the door and basically sees Chief off and energizes the transporter when he left, which I thought was 
you know, clearly Chief O'Brien had beamed off Captain Picard to away missions a ton ton of times, and it was kind of like a reversal of the roles. Yeah, and I like the way, the scene right before that, where he goes to, like, um, the, the bridge of the Enterprise, to, like, you know, he's always saying goodbye, and he's like, oh, where's, you know, no one's there, and he's like, oh, yeah, and you're like, oh, Captain Picard's there, you want to say hi? And he's like, yeah, no. And it's like, I kind of like the way that he feels kind of awkward, and it's like, you kind of get the feeling of, and I guess like, maybe, like, this is how a lot of people feel on the Enterprise, that, like, you know, the main seven, you know, that they're this, like, little group, and that everyone else is, like, and, you know, maybe, like, people like him and Barkay, like, they feel like maybe they're better than, but they know them better than most, but they still don't feel like they're part of that, and so we're not really sure, like, how much, you know, so, like, I like that way, because I feel like that a lot, too, like, you know, he's afraid, I feel like that's something I get along with, you know, with the way I am with people, like, I'm, I'm sure of, like, my, how much a part of this I make, like, it's gonna be off, like, you know, if I do this, I'm at, is it, like, presu- am I presuming too much? So I like that, and we can't get you know, so that was a like a nice little touch I thought. Yeah, I, I liked it too because first of all, it's always good to see people being awkward and like noticing that that's a real thing, and especially in the in the context of Star Trek, where again, like everyone seems like a superhero, and it's nice for us to see a character like O'Brien, who again, like you said, is supposed to be more relatable to the average person. But he was like, you know, like he was on the bridge. O'Brien was never really on the bridge. He's, like, is that really his place there? Like, I think that's probably what yeah. he was thinking in that moment. He was like, what am I really... I mean, I'm I'm here to check it out, but is this really my place? Yeah. In a way, that kind of makes it, because obviously he'll find his place on Deep Space Nine. So there's a way he goes from a place where he's unsure of his value to a place where... And I think that would be amazing. He'll, like, he'll, like, like he'll say later in the series, he prefers DS9 to Enterprise because... I guess in part because, like, you know, he says, like, it's always need something. I always have something to do because it's always breaking down. Yeah, the Enterprise is just this perfect, the the Enterprise is just this Pop perfect line, yeah. technological marvel that's constantly being maintained by the best staff in the Federation. So yeah. he doesn't have to fix anything. He just, all he's doing is sitting in the transporter room pressing buttons. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing about Deep Space Nine as compared to, like, Next Generation of the original series is that, in both of those, I get the sense the Enterprise is like, it's the Federation's flagship. So, like, all these people are like, you know, the best the Federation has to offer. Like, you know, the idea is like, you know, Crusher and Bones are like the best doctors. Like, Jordy and Scotty, they're the best engineers. You know, Spock and Data, they're the best, yeah. you know, science officers. And, like, I would kind of like, you know, I watched, a few years ago, I watched um, Cheers. And obviously, like, Cheers has some, mostly you think of the bar, but also, I guess, do you think it kind of reminds you of that? And, like, a lot of other sitcoms where the premise is that the characters are all basically, like, losers. And, obviously, like, it's still Star Trek, so it doesn't go that far. You know, the characters are so portrayed to be confident. But I like kind of a contrast where, like, you know, as a Federation the Enterprise, you know, obviously, you imagine everyone's probably... I mean, I imagine everyone, when you graduate from Starfleet, everyone's, like, that's, like, everyone's dream job. That's what everyone fights for. But these space I it's kind of like, you know, I mean, it's kind of like... Probably, like, I guess a lot of it's, like, says something there. Especially in the... At, in the pilot before, like, they find the wormhole and becomes, like, you know, a big important thing. You know, in a way, these characters are kind of like, I guess, you know, loser, again, that may be a little hard, because, you know, obviously they're... Yeah, I don't know if they're losers, they're just kind of not the best. Yeah, they're not, like, the top of the, the Federation's line. Yeah, exactly. You know, DC Space Nine has always struck me as, like, the most earthly of the Star Trek series. I, th- I think that, actually, Dax kind of falls into that. Yeah, she seems like the most TNG-like character. Yeah, D- Dax... Seems like a an interesting blend between kind of like the the TNG superhero kind of yeah character and 
the DS9, like, I'm not the best kind of character because she, clearly she knows her stuff. Yeah. She's always, like, cooking up some techno babble to solve yeah. the, the, the problem at hand. But also, she doesn't seem to really take her duties as seriously as even Cisco does. Or, you know, she's, she's, she's like, really fun-loving and kind of, like, yeah. doesn't really... She doesn't seem to be an overachiever. Yeah, she's always, like, trying to cheer... Like, yeah, she's never... Yeah, I'm trying to think... I want, I don't, yeah, I mean, I've said to... She's rarely... But I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's any time where she gets, like, really... I get angry or anything. I guess, I guess with Quark in that episode where he, like, becomes an arm dealer. But, yeah, like, she's very rarely, like, gets... She's usually very cheerful. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like the Dax character... I always had a hard time bonding with that character. Maybe it's, like, it's hard. Like, you know, to kind of, like, for the right, get a sense of, like, okay, she's, like, both a, like, you know, a 28-year-old girl girl, and also, like, you know, this hundreds-old-year-old being. So maybe, like, it's hard for him to get, like... Like, I think a lot of her episodes tend to... Her, the episodes that she focuses on tend to not be good. You know, maybe when we go along, we'll discover, like, things we thought are wrong or whatever. But I really do like her as, like you know, a member of the cast. Like, I like her interacting and talking with the other characters and, like, the way she, you know, she really interacts well with all the characters. The last time I watched Deep Space Nine, I remember liking Dax a lot more than I did when I was a kid. But still, the whole time I was just kind of like, you know, they they really could have done a whole lot more with this. Me, I kind of also feel like once Worf comes on the show, she kind of becomes mostly, like... Worf's wife. Yeah, and, like, most of her episodes tend to also be Worf episodes. You know, honestly, I think that Compared to the way that she was used before, I think that she became a much in more interesting character because it allowed, like, Curzon's yeah. ties with the Klingons to kind of come out, and it just seemed like there was more of a dynamic. So, in the episode, in Emissary, Jadzia has an orb experience where she she opens the, the orb and it shows, it shows a flashback to the Dax symbiont being transplanted from Curzon to Jadzia. Yeah. And I think that was a really cool way to set up to set up her origin because if they were if they were just gonna say, oh, here's Jadzia Dax, and she used to be this other person, but now she's Jadzia yeah. and it's because of this thing that's inside of her. Out of context, I think it would have been weird, but because it was an orb and it was supposed to give you a flashback, it it it, it all seemed to kind of work out really well. Yeah, and now you mentioned, I didn't follow up, but yeah, now you mentioned it probably did really help to have, like, a visual showing of how it, how it worked rather than just being told. How Quark, since he's probably the most, whatever, of, like, how DS9 is there from the other Star Trek shows, because, like, no other Star Trek has any character like Quark. Yeah, I, I'm gonna have so much to say about Quark over the course of us doing this podcast. I feel like Quark, Quark is clearly, Quark is, is the best character on Deep Space Nine. And, in my opinion. And I think it's because he's so complicated and yeah. he has this philosophy, right? He has the, the Ferengi philosophy and he's, he's really kind of hardline Ferengi at first and he kind of softens later on. But he, he always has the kind of Ferengi ideology. He's not like Ron where he never like, he's not like Ron who like completely gives into like Federation, the Federation or Nog who like, they completely like embrace like living as a Federation. Like at the end, he's still very proud. Like, you're right, he's, you obviously he's not as bad as, like, you know, any, many of the numerous ever Frangy we've seen throughout the Star Trek fr franchise, but he's still obviously, like, you know, proud of who he is. I think Quark is great because he sticks to his ideology, and it's so different from the, the Federation ideology. Yeah, it's like he's, um, 
Yeah, he's like capitalist. He's like a staunch capitalist. He's sexist. He shows at times shows a little xenophobia. I'm thinking mostly of the episode with um, those weird-looking refugees come. Oh yeah. And he's like, Yo, why don't you go back to where you came from? It's really easy to look at that kind of character and be like, oh, he's he's just kind of a shitty guy, or he's like he's bad or whatever. But I I actually think that. Quark is a really good foil for the Federation because it shows you kind of like he's the one who over the course of the series resists the Federation's kind of colonialism where it's pretty clear that the Federation wants to convert everybody into their way of life. And I mean, it they, they, they have good intentions, but it's pretty clear that the Federation shows up at Bajor I mean, Captain Picard even mentions it in the beginning of the show where he's like, at any cost, short of violating the Prime Directive, let's get Bajor into the Federation, which basically means let's convert them to our way of life. Part of the Federation endgame is, in their mind, like, yeah, eventually, like, yeah, the Cardassians, the Klingons, the Romulans, like, they're all eventually going to join. I mean, that's the endgame. Yeah. And Quark offers a, a really good contrast to that because he's... First of all, he's resisting it actively, and there there are parts of his resistance that make sense. Like his his people, for better or worse, have been doing the things the way that they've been doing them for you know hundreds of years, thousands of years, and they're not unsuccessful, right? Like they're a really they're a really successful species. Everyone knows who they are. They have warp technology. They're you know they're they're a, they're a power in the Alpha Quadrant, and they, and they're peaceful, too. Like, they, they might have that kind of capitalist drive, but they're, they're also peaceful. We should move on to his, I mean, the Quark, we actually move on to his frenemy, Odo. The first thing I noticed about Odo in this episode is that he looks really weird. His, his makeup is like, I mean, obviously they, they figure out what they're going for later on in the series, um, but yeah, he's like, he has way more wrinkles than he ends up having later, and even his voice sounds different. I, yeah. I don't know what it is about that. Maybe well, probably he was just finding his voice. Like kind of like how the Simpsons, like the first season of The Simpsons, Homer sounds like much different. They'll you know, experiment until they find what works. Well, I know the creator said he was created to be kind of like the um, kind of basically to be the character who what what Spock was to the original series and Data to Next Generation, basically like the outsider who kind of like he was able to offer like in such is able to offer comments on, like, you know, that, you know, only you know, only an outsider would kind of notice. Yeah, they did establish pretty quickly that he was a, a shapeshifter, and when he had, uh, when What's-His-Name tried to stab him through the face, and he morphed his head away, and, and also later on in the episode where he morphs into that bag of latinum, which I always thought was kind of interesting. I, I, I never noticed this before, but... Odo morphs into this duffel bag full of strips of latinum that these Cardassians are end up carrying onto their ship, which means that when they're carrying it around, you can hear stuff jingling around inside of it, which means that Odo morphed into a bunch of different pieces of things, which sounds really complicated, right? Like, why can he be a bunch of different I mean, he's also able to like, you know, inside of like a duffel a bag, convert, but he can't make a face? Mass. Like, he's able to, like... I think, like, some people speculate that, I guess, like, a lot of, like, sci-fi stuff, they say, like, oh, the mass is, like, transferred to an extra dimension or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I like Odo. I, I, I feel like throughout the series, he kind of gets 
good and then gets crappier and then gets good again. They kind of remind you at times that, you know, Ima Oda is like obviously a good character, but there's like kind of a latent fascist in him. You know, there's a lot of times where he's like kind of complains about how like the Federation, like, you know, it's like, oh, you can't just arrest someone just because you think they're bad or you need to prove or something. And he kind of like, and so I was like, I kind of like that interesting for a character. Like, you know, that, you know, Ebo, he's obviously a good character and he's not like a fascist in that, you know, he doesn't want power for his own meat. You know, he's only like do it because he think, well, if I, I was, can do this, I can more better protect people. But it is like an interesting for a hero, like, especially in Star Trek for like, you know, one of our characters' quirk is, like, capitalism, which is kind of, like, a very, you know, typically presented as a very un-Star Trek philosophy. So is, you know, we have our character who's another, because that's like, kind of another un-Star Trek philosophy. Yeah, where he just thinks he should be able to do whatever he wants to implement the law. And it's never really kind of explained what Odo's vision of the law really is, because sometimes it's Bajoran law, and sometimes it's his own personal code of what he thinks is right or wrong. Well, so I guess the idea is, like, the changelings, like, as we later see, that have, like, maybe it's, like, built into them, like, it's some, like, genetic thing, so, like, to, like, that, like, to give, or to impose order on people, on things. Yeah, I, I, it's nice that they kind of established that part of his character really quickly, and when they introduced the other changelings later, they, they made them like him. Basically, they, give, they also kind of, like, make him look better, and then we can see, oh, how much worse Odo could be. The Dominion ends up being, like, this is what Odo would be like if there were tons of him and he got hit, and he got his way, basically. If he hadn't grown up on Bajor but grown up with his own people, that's what he would be like. How Kira then, and she's like probably the character who has like the most, like Bashir doesn't have much to do in this pilot. It didn't occur to me until this past time when I watched it that Kira is clearly inspired or based on Ensign Ro Laren from Next Generation, where... And that was, like, the original plan. Like, the earliest series Bible, yeah, it was Ensign Ro. But I guess Michelle Forbes didn't want to... She didn't want to do it, like, be a, I guess, a regular or... Oh, I didn't know character. That. So they came... And I think, as they said, it kind of works out better, because Ensign Ro is kind of disconnected from Bajor, and she's from Starfleet, where Kara is, like, very connected to Bajor. And it's not Starfleet, so that kind of gives her more... Because I can't imagine a grow would probably side with Cisco more than more than definitely more than Kira does at least. She seemed in this episode like she seemed like she was really angry and really. Yeah. Rollair was more of a. I feel like Rollair. She was more of a cool kind of like, you know, kind of like. I don't want to say bitchy. Yeah, but like, well, kind of like her attitude was more like she was more cool while Tira was more like hot, like, you know, like. Lorelai's more like, you know, I don't care, you know, like, this is who I am, I don't, you know, like, yeah, I disobey, and I was court martial. I don't give a shit. You know, while Kira's, like, you know, very explosive and fiery. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing to have on Star Trek, again, because so many Star Trek characters, so many main Star Trek characters have their emotions kind of, like, contained pretty well. I mean, not that they're all Vulcans or anything, but, you know, they're, again, they're, like, super professional, and they never kind of let what's going on emotionally get the best of them where Kira obviously multiple times even this in this episode ends up like yelling at people and letting her sort of like her tumultuous past kind of show through. And while we're on Kira, I just want to one of the big difference between this and the ever Star Trek shows is like the treatment of religion where you know typically in Star Trek 
especially like, you know, I think early next generation when Gene Roddenberry, who I, from what I understand, was like kind of like what we now call like a Dawkins, you know, hard, you know, atheism is good, you know, religion is an enemy, you know, religion is portrayed as like, you know, very much this bad thing that we need, that's like, we naturally evolve out of. And I guess that was, even though it was never said, that was his like, kind of like intention that like, you know, he, there was no religion on earth anymore. But, and as we know, both throughout Star Trek, you know, godlike beings are pretty much inevitably turned out to be just evil, yeah, evil, super powerful aliens. And so the props are very interesting that they're, you know, again, like, wherever aliens are not, they're, they're, they're benevolent. That they do care for Bajor, but not like, you know, evil aliens who, you know, need to be, the, the, who the Bajorans need to be liberated from. And that, and also, I guess, like, portrayal of, like, you know, something like, what, how religion would be positive and that the Bajorans, and that, you know, as, you know, he'll say in the season finale, you know, Cisco will say, to you know, like, it's very, you know, it provided them great, it provided them comfort when they had nothing else, you know, during when they were occupied by Cardassians. And so I thought that was a very interesting way of like saying that religion might not be bad. Yeah. Or at least say that, you know, it's not, yeah, it has its good side too. You know, it's not just this thing that used to like, you know, enslave people. They kind of go back and forth on their portrayal of it where they they clearly state that the Federation members, or at least the humans, have dropped religion from their culture, and they don't do it anymore, and it was because they didn't need to believe in these fake beings anymore, or they didn't need to believe in, these, in anything other than science. But then they introduced the Bajorans, who have a religion that is based on gods that actually end up being real and it's it's hard to even say what they're what they were trying to say there I, I wonder if they even knew that they were kind of making this weird argument where they were saying oh yeah like all the earth people's religions are, are were were wrong because those gods were they, they didn't exist but the Bajorans they do have gods and they do exist and it's I don't think that they ever explored what that really meant for the treatment of religions in other cultures. Like what if some, what if they would have said something like, well, maybe Jesus was real and he was an alien. That was actually apparently, apparently that was like Roddenberry's original proposal for the start for Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. That sounds pretty crazy. We do see the negatives of like, you know, the darker side of religion, you know, both in the Jordan itself and also in, you know, the founders obviously who are, yeah, I always see like, you know, that later episode with like the Bajoran who, like the Jem Hadar who's like, doesn't need Ketrasol White, you know, he's like realizing like our gods, you know, other cultures, their gods, like, you know, wait for them after their death. Ours just, ours just tell us to die and there's nothing, and they're not there for us at all. So, you know, we do get to see the darker side of religion, both in the Bajorans and in other cults. But I think like, regardless of what, like, I feel like it does get the series like a more spiritual kind of feel, I feel, than, you know, and kind of like almost like a more mythic feel than like you know than you know the ever series have where it's like clearly like you know it's like every at the end of the day like there may be something that seems like magic but at the end of the episode it's like okay it's you know this device it's just you know you know it's a fantastic technology or it's fantastic powerful alien but it's still like something we can understand but i feel like majoran's like the fact that it's never confirmed but it's also never like denied for gods which i feel gives it like a feel that i think i really like that's really different Distinguish it from the other shows. 
Oh, Bashir. So yeah, is he the only main character we haven't talked about? He's not really in this. I mean, he's uh, yeah, he's probably not really in this episode that much. Like, he's only in briefly. I mean, he gets a more established as we go along. But what do you think of him in this episode? Because obviously, I guess he hits on Jadzia a lot. I mean, I think a lot of people have said that you know they found him, they find early Bashir to be annoying. I I can see that, I guess, but I also kind of think it's. I, I mean, it's certainly a, a contrast, like, to Crusher and especially Bones and that he's, like, very young and very eager. You know, he's actually pretty much the opposite of Bones. You know, he's young, you know, being young and, you know, eager instead of old and grumpy. Yeah, so Bashir is, is really young, and he's also pretty likable, I think, in the beginning, where he's, he's, not, he's not so young that he's annoying or unbelievable, but he's, he's still kind of, like wet behind the ears or whatever and he's I like the, the, when he commits a you know the social faux pas he met when he started talking with with kira he's like oh yeah it's great good to be here on the frontier and stuff like and she's like oh the frontier is my home and it's like he realized oh he's just basically called her referred to her basically her hero as like you know like savage wilderness but he's like you know i like that moment yeah he's that, that was a really good scene i think i think it it shows again the federation's not the Federation citizens aren't always super open-minded and they aren't always like, they don't always treat other cultures the way that they like to think that they do. And also it, it just kind of establishes Julian as like, it. obviously he's competent or else he wouldn't be a doctor, but he's not super skilled when it comes to, interacting with his teammates. Yeah. Maybe before we go, we should talk about Galdicott. Yeah, I love Galdicott. And I do too. He's probably, I think he's probably, he may be, yeah, he may be the best villain in Star Trek ever. Sorry, Khan fans. Definitely. He's just, he's actually evil. No other Star Trek villain is actually evil like Galdicott is. Like, especially as, as they develop the character and he, yeah. like later on, he just like goes completely psycho. It, it, I think it was really cool how they introduced Golducott immediately as Cisco's rival. Like yeah. instantly, Cisco hates Ducat, and Ducat has that smarmy kind of fake friendly attitude yeah. towards Cisco. Like it's just like right off the bat, their relationship is established. And I think it's Yeah, that self friend like, well, you're far away from the Federation. You know, if you ever we're right we're right by. So if you ever need any help, just call us. You know? Yeah. And it's I don't know if the writers knew where they were gonna take the show later on, or whether they knew that Ducat was going to be such a major character, but it almost feels like it when when you see how they treated him in this episode, it almost feels like they did know. It yeah, it does feels seem like, like he's being set up as like, like, oh. Yeah, the major... It does seem like he's definitely being set up as like a recurring character. I mean, my favorite aspect of, of Ducat, I guess, and him and Cisco's relationship is that Ducat's... I didn't know if I, I get a sense of this episode, but like, he really wants Cisco to like him and to admit he... And to Cisco to admit he likes him. But even though he wants to like... He's like really desperate for Cisco's approval or somehow, which I feel like... I just think it's like it's such a neat thing that's not in a lot of you don't see in a lot of ever like you know villain hero relationships that the that the villain yeah. is like really desperate for the hero's approval. Yeah, I mean it's, it's clearly some kind of complex that Ducat has where yeah. like, he he wants people to like him, but he's evil and he 
does a bunch of stuff yeah. to make everyone hate him. Yeah, he wants Bajoran to like, and he's like, yeah, he like wants people to like him, and then, and then he gets angry, and he like angry at them and wants to hurt, and he, yeah, he wants to hurt them when they don't like him, like when they don't. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, you're right. He does obviously has some sort of weird psychological stuff going on. Yeah, I mean, Ducat, he's he craves the fave. I think we all crave the fave. Yeah, and he's just oh, he magic all Ducat on on Twitter. <laughs> oh God, he'd be sending so many dirty DMs. <laughs> Yeah, he'd be all up in the DMs. Oh, yeah. I mean, although I, I can't really see Ducat having a lot of FIFOs. It's, it seems unlikely that anyone would find him appealing. Um, well, I guess we should talk about, what do you think of scenes with the Prophets, where the Prophets, they take the form of other characters? This is, I think, the longest one they do. I, think, I mean, we have others, but I don't think any of them are as long as this one. I guess because they're, we're, again, we're introducing us to the concept. I mean, it's an interesting way I thought to betray them, like, without actually showing them. Yeah, I, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think that for aliens who don't actually have a physical appearance of their own, uh, this makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, you know, clearly it's just an, kind of an easy way for them to, to tell the story. They, they, don't act, they don't have to hire any new actors. They don't have to do any kind of crazy special effects. Uh, but... So it can save them money. But at the same time, it, it's also really clever. You know, like, if if they're getting into Cisco's mind, which is, is what they're doing, they're getting into his mind, they're probably going to end up using imagery from what he's thinking about. So it, it makes a lot of sense that they're doing that. Okay, uh, we're running up in an hour. I think that's long enough for uh, to ask people to listen to, listen to, a, to a new podcast. So we'll just cut it there. And we'll have plenty of time, obviously, to talk more about all these characters and the series. We're uh, we're gonna try and do this pretty often, and our plan is for the rest of the episodes of our show to talk about maybe a couple episodes of Deep Space Nine every time. Yeah, it'll probably depending. Like I imagine we'll find some episodes we have more to say about than others. So, but you know, obviously we'll see as we go along. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll continue to. 